Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Suddenly, she knew. She knew. Love. That was what she had that it did not have. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, our summer book club on A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle. I can hardly believe that this is the final week. I always feel this sense both of triumph for having made it through a summer and managed to record episodes and get them up and see everybody commenting on that, but also this sense of sadness because to finish a book is always to kind of close the cover on a friend and also to close the conversation with many people who have been talking about the book with me. So for everyone who has listened, I'm thankful for you. I've loved learning and growing. I always discover things I wouldn't have discovered without the conversations that I've had. And speaking of conversations, um, so today I have the great fun of inviting our final guest on the show, Charlotte Jones Voikless. Welcome on the show, Charlotte. Thank you. So lovely to be here. And the fun thing is that you are our dear author's granddaughter. Is that right? I am. And you're also the executor of her estate. Is that true? You take care of her literary estate? Yes, I take care of her literary estate, literary business. That that is um, quite a legacy to be in charge of and to love. Um, I've been so excited to talk with you about this book and about um, Madeline, uh, but give us a brief introduction to yourself first. Sure. I'm Charlotte. I'm Madeline's second grandchild. I have an older sister and a younger brother and um, two two cousins as well. Um, and I lived with my grandmother uh, in New York for, during college and graduate school. I graduated from high school the year my grandfather died. Um, so she was lonely and I was lonely and wanting to keep her company and have a place to stay while I was in college. And so we, and we were, we, we were close before because my sister and I were her first grandchildren, and um, we were very close um, during my those really formative young adult years. And now that I have college-age students of my own, my amazement at her generosity and patience with, with me <laughs> is renewed because it's not easy living with college students, I have to say. Um, and we were just talking before this podcast started Um, you did a PhD Uh, you you were in the throes that I am now in Um, and uh, was she kind of an encouragement and a voice along that way she was she always expected and encouraged me to to read and to write Mm -hmm. um and I went right into graduate school from college uh, because, as I, as I told you earlier, that uh, the only thing I knew about myself was that I was a good student. Um, and I really enjoyed the reading and writing part, but I didn't like the teaching and classroom part. And um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to finish my degree. And then I had two kids, and my grandmother actually very sternly said to me, you're not going to be one of those women who never finishes, are you? And that kind of stiffened my spine. Um, and and I did eventually finish, even if I never got an academic job. Um, and there's nothing like having two children under two to make you really value mm-hmm. quiet time at the library by yourself. So um, even if it was only two hours at a time, uh, that's how I got it done. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well... It is quite a gauntlet, quite a, a harrowing of hell to go through, but I like imagining you being um, cheer-led by, by our lovely author. That, what was it like to be Madeline's granddaughter? Well, she was the only grandmother I knew. Hmm. Um, my paternal grandmother uh, was in England. I was born in England, actually, um, hmm. 
And so I never really got to know her. So Madeline was the only grandmother I I had. So I thought she was completely normal. Like that's what <laughs> grandmothers grandmothers were. And there's so many there's so many wonderful things about a grandparent grandchild relationship that um, there's just there's not the pressure mm-hmm. of um, kind of performance that children and parents expect of each other sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, from my grandmother, just felt complete unconditional love, mm-hmm. uh, which is something very special. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's I mean, that's really the foundation of what it was like mm-hmm. with her. That is a wonderful foundation to have. I know. It is funny, isn't it? I Watching my mom, even with my sister's kids, I feel like both kids with parents feel like they need to behave, but then parents always feel like, they, like they're responsible for the outcome of the child's life in a way that puts pressure on the parent. But then grandparents get to have that kind of guiding, guiding role. It's not that they're not in a guidance position or, or mothering in a certain sense, but there's just this kind of freedom to be both the child to the grandparent, the grandparent to the child, because there's not as much responsibility between both of them. That can be such a gift. Yeah, I felt I felt that my grandmother really enjoyed us, yeah. you know, which you don't always feel from parents. It, there's love, but there's there's worry and there's obligation and, and duty. All these things, yeah. So, and I see it with my, you know, my kids and my mom. And their other grandmother too. That that there's a sense of enjoyment without without the worry. Mm, so yeah. How long did you live with her? Um, I lived with her for about eight years, mm. uh, and then I was you know blocks away from her. So mm. um, we lived near each other, mm. um, and then you know as she as her health started to fail. Um, she moved up to Connecticut to be closer to my mom, to my mom. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and you talked, you told me that you are in Crosswicks today. Is that right? I am in Crosswicks today. Um, we're very lucky to still have this house. Um, and it looks quite different than it did when my grandparents were here. I think that, you know, in her Crosswicks journal, she writes about, drafty windows and not working radiators and water freezing in the pipes and needing, you know, they had an incinerator or they didn't have an incinerator. They used to burn the garbage. That was how people got rid of garbage. So the house is less drafty. Um, we have central air. It's not, it's not the same at all. It can still welcome all the family and other people. Um, and it's really wonderful to have the continuity. Hmm. Um, and we came up here in March after retrieving our children from college when um, the pandemic hit here and here from New York City to have more space um, and outdoor um, and we feel very lucky indeed. That's very special it's fun to think of um, of course Crosswicks would be full during the during during the quarantine I it's so it's such a gift to be able to have a space that feels like home, that is continuity and family, and that can kind of embrace you in, in weary times. Um, so another question I had for you. When did you first read Wrinkle? I wish I had. My sister has a really great story about that. She can sort of remember exactly when. I don't have a strong memory memory of um, exactly when I read it. I do have memories of being super proud of when people when other people would read the book and I could say that was my grandmother which I was really happy to do mm-hmm. in grade school I became less happy to do in high school um, um, so but I I always knew she was a, a writer mm-hmm. but again like she was my only grandmother so I thought that's what is no normal it's no more remarkable yeah. than a dad being a doctor or a whatever. Yeah, she's a writer. Sister and I had the privilege of being like the only people 
who were allowed in her writing room, which oh, wow. she family called her her tower, her ivory mm-hmm. tower, sort of tongue in cheek, um, because you know we were we didn't interrupt her. We did our own quiet work. Um, so I remember reading um, her books up there with her while she was typing away. That must have been quite an honor indeed. Also, I love that you called it the Ivory Tower. My brother occasionally will refer to my career in that way, but I don't think it's with great irony. Um. (laughs) Oh, Oh, well, I suppose we should talk about the book. You know, we were talking before and I was saying, you know, what would I ask you about your grandmother that I wouldn't know to ask? And you said something really beautiful, which is who she is, is in this book. It, it is true. I think um, one of my grandmother's great gifts was to, to really write what was in her heart and what the spirit spoke to her mm. of. Um, and I think this book is really exemplifies that. Mm. It's, so, it was so unlike anything she wrote before, mm. so unlike anything that came before it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, she calls it her psalm of praise to life. It was mm-hmm. her sort of writing about a universe in which she hoped to believe. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, aspirational in that way. And and it, it really is her, her, you know, who she is is on every page. Absolutely. Um, and I think the book surprised her, too. Would write to find out what she thought mm. about things. Um, I mean, she was skilled. There's skill and craft. But uh, she is on, on every page, and she is Meg, absolutely. I'm so glad, because in my mind, I imagine her as Meg. Um, and I felt... I think that was the thing when I read it as a little girl, I really identified with it because Meg is just full of such huge feelings uh, in ways that I didn't really read in almost any other children's books, especially about girls. You know, I loved Anne Green Gables and that was pretty close, but like, uh, I just don't remember reading any other character that I felt like, yes, that's how I feel. And I'm not crazy for having these big, awkward, deep, um, feelings about the world and and that was kind of the gift that Meg was and it's been interesting you know talking with I guess at this point I've talked to 10 different people about the book and about um and about uh, her writing in general and one of the things people keep on saying is I feel like she's my friend I feel like she's uh my an aunt looking over me I feel like she's this or that and I think that that's because of what you said she really kind of gives herself in writing um you don't feel like what you're receiving. Yes, it is crafted. Yes, it is the sign of a, an author who is who is skilled and who invested time in becoming a good writer. But I think that's not what people love it. I think they love it because there's something given of herself into it um, that kind of makes it come to life, uh, which makes it so beautiful. And I think also the, the thing that you said, um, she's writing about the universe that she hopes to believe in. I think that also is something when you read this book, there is a sense of aspiration of wanting to be at home in the world and feeling like this gives you a world worth being at home in. And I love that. And I love to know from somebody who knew her that you feel like that sense of being given a self is true, that we are, we are receiving something of her through the pages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's dive into this last chapter and in doing that kind of explore some of the themes I think that are really beautifully tied up really um, in a lovely and satisfying way and also set up for future books. Uh, I always try to do a quick flyover of what, you know, blow by blow and the most boring way I can happens, although it's hard to do this one in a very boring way. Um, But we come to the Mrs. W's, as I like to call them. flying into the scene, um, although they haven't quite materialized. And there's this kind of uh, discourse over what what we are to do, because, of course, Charles Wallace is still on Camazots, 
And, um, and Meg is still mad about him at the very beginning. She's still mad about him being there and no one having done anything. Um, no one having rescued him. And there's kind of talk of, should Calvin go? Should, um, should Mr. Murray go? And, and then there's this kind of moment where Meg suddenly understands. It says, uh, Meg's tears stopped as abruptly as they had started, but I do understand. She felt tired and unexpectedly peaceful. Now the coldness that under Aunt Beast's ministrations had left her body also left her mind. So there's this sense of the kind of disorientation and lostness um, that's happened is finally resolved and she is healed not only in her body but in her soul. And she kind of realizes that it's it's her who has to go. And um, so she goes with... Um, she, she says farewell. She's going with Mrs. Uh, witch. Uh, she wishes the Aunt Beast could come with her. I love Aunt Beast. Aunt Beast is just the best. <laughs> she is. She's so good. I, I, I feel like we all need a hug from Aunt Beast after the end of 2020. Um, a lot of healing. A lot of healing needs to happen. <laughs> I agree. A lot of healing. Um, well, and the thing that you see is that when, when Meg is healed and hugged by Aunt Beast, she's able to then go give that to other people, and I feel like we need mm -hmm. that. Anyway, so Aunt Beast offers to come. She can't come. Mrs. Witch safely carries her through the black thing, and she finds herself on camisots, remembering that she has something that it doesn't have. She goes straight to find Charles Wallace. She tries many different things to save him. First she thinks maybe it's her anger, but then she realizes that it knows all about hatred. Um, but the one thing that it doesn't know about is love. And she thinks about um, how loved she is and how much she loves. And in this, she draws Charles Wallace out um, of it. And, um, and then we find ourselves, it's kind, of a it's kind of a fast ending. It tumbles to the end. She rescues Charles Wallace. They find themselves in the garden. Mr. and Mrs. U Murray are reunited. Um, and and Mr. Mrs. Who, Mrs. Witch. Mrs. Watsit are all um, whisked away to do something that she never knows what it was. Okay, so there is our flyover in a very um, uh, less dramatic way than it should be because it's a very dramatic ending. Let's pick out some, what, what are the things that you love about this chapter? What are the things that you notice in it? Oh, there's so many great lines and moments in this and, you know, we can we can start and i think you know it's important that uh when the mrs w's come um she's still really um upset and full of blame um and that is part of that is part of the you know the black thing that's part of the darkness that is still in her and i think in an earlier chapter the you know on beast says, you know, we don't know what the spiritual effects of this are. Um, and this is, this is one of the spiritual effects, right? And um, even sort of um, what, what she has to learn, you know, she's, she's upset with her dad because he came and he didn't fix it. And she's upset with the Mrs. W's because they're saying that they're not going to fix it. Um, and so who's going who's gonna to fix it? Somebody else should fix it, right? So in a way, she kind of she kind of wants what it had been promising. She wants somebody else to do it. Um, and I think this the moment where the scales fall from her eyes, and she suddenly understands that it you know it, it has to meet, be me. There isn't anybody else. You know that's so like that's so like what all of us have to understand at at some point. <laughs> that um that daddy's not going to fix it um our guardian angels aren't going to fix it but they're here to help us you know they're here there's help um and there's support but but we're the ones who have to put one foot in front of the other and work yeah i think that's one of the things that i've loved about watching meg's arc is it's about her you know becoming a person who knows how to choose but I feel like sometimes in the ways we talk about that in the modern world, it can be very kind of 
an isolated self, right? That I just need to own it and do it myself. And it's not that kind of agency that she's given. It's not that she is just the lone, you know, person, Invictus, you know, uh, I'm the captain of my fate, I'm the master of my... It's not that kind of agency. It's this agency that comes from knowing that she's loved, that she's been given a lot, and that now she has to, to make the move. Right, for other people. It's not about herself. Um, she's not a superhero in, you know, in the, in the same way that superhero, you know, superheroes save the world. Right. But it's, it's, she's not empowered to act for herself. I mean, it's really, she, she acts because she loves her brother. Um, she acts in service of something. Um, and I think, I think that sort of second part of self-empowerment is so important um, about the book and for us all to understand that, yes, we have to build agency in our muscles to, to act, to choose, but, um, but, you know, always keeping in mind what we're doing that for. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, you, you, you have to be able to do both. You can't do, can't do one or the other. Yeah. You have, you can't love others until you love yourself too. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. But there isn't, that's the thing. There isn't only one answer. There isn't only one battle. There isn't only one time where you have to be strong. Yeah. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> I <just> wish. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you know, it's not, and it's not, this isn't Star Wars. It's not like they blew up the Death Star and it's over. Well, even Star Wars isn't Star Wars because there's always, there's always the Empire. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, defeating it on Kamazots doesn't mean everything's fine on earth. It doesn't mean, you know, it is just one manifestation of the darkness. Mm. Uh, and it will be met again. Mm. And Meg will have to meet it again. But mm. what she learns and what we all learn is that evil exists, mm-hmm. uh, but we, we can fight it. Yeah. And we're and we we're gonna have to do it. Yeah. Like every, every day. Every day, <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And of course, um, Meg's whole battle is learning how to fight it, and she's kind of this whole time been wrestling with, you know, this idea that her strengths are her or her weaknesses are her strengths, and what does that mean? And um, I love, um, you know, this is of course called the the title of the chapter is the foolish and the weak. And before she goes, Mrs. Who, who of course is famous for her, her quotes. I feel very like Mrs. Who because as an example, by me just quoting, um, crazy girlfriend, I kind of think of things in, in a card file of like literary and visual references. Um, and Mrs. Who does that. And this one is of course a passage from scripture. She says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how many, uh, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound those which are mighty. And um, I think the thing that struck me is when, uh, when Meg meets with the it, there are all these kind of different ways we think of, of mightiness or strength you know, in the world, whether that's, you know, having, being really, really knowledgeable and being able to outsmart something. But of course she can't do that to the it because the it knows everything, whatever. Um, or whether it's being really, really kind of empowered by strength, which you could think of kind of as maybe her anger, her ability to kind of overpower. But the thing that overpowers it is love and love is a willingness to be vulnerable, uh, towards other people. When you love someone, you kind of you put yourself to some extent at their mercy, not at at their mercy, but at the mercy of your, your love for them. Um, you know, to love it all is to be vulnerable, but that is the thing. It's in that weakness that she is able to overpower the it. Um, and, and I think that's such a, a beautiful image because I think it can so often be our temptation to try to overpower, um, 
overpower evil by power uh, when that's the very thing I think that can can corrupt us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm remembering a story that my grandmother my grandmother would repeat the story um, about the long process of wrinkled being adapted for film mm. um, because those you know the film had been on the works and rights tied up since 1979 so a very long time and there had been multiple screenplays written by you know very prominent people and one um, one script that she read this is before my time um, you know had on the first page it's kind of an epigraph was Love is power. And <laughs> steps across the room. He doesn't get it at all. <laughs> um, so, so absolutely. I mean, power, you know, we talked about Foucault a little bit. We could, yeah, you know, other ways to think of power. Yeah. But the way we, you know, commonly use it, it's an exertion of force. Yeah. On, um you know, my will over yours. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, um, and that's not what, that's not what love is. Um, and, um, I've been thinking a lot about a wind in the door, which is mm. the next book in the series. Um, in part, cause there's actually two theatrical adaptations, um, in the works. Mm. So, and I, Watched one last night that was a sort of a Zoom performance, but by middle schoolers, um, which was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another adaptation um, that's being developed at the Kennedy Center in D.C. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and, you know, one of the, the themes of that book is that, that love isn't what you feel, it's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that can be really hard it can be really hard to explain or to, um, to show. Mm. Um, and in fact, you know, one of my, one of the things I do, uh, as executor is, um, try and get works translated into Mm. other languages. And I don't speak a lot of other languages, but I can read French. And, um, (laughs) when the French, um, edition of, uh, a wind in the door, came back I like looked up that line and they had added a word they had added seulement like love isn't only what you feel it's what you do I was like no that's not (laughs) that word is everything like why did you have to put that word in um um, so this sorry I guess I'm rambling a little bit but just thinking about what it what it means for Meg to love Charles Wallace, Mm. right? Doesn't, it's not just like, I'm loving you. I'm feeling you. She comes to rescue him. Um, and she reaches to him and she, she's also knows that she's the one to go because he loves her. Mm. That that his love for her is also going to, um, draw him out. Yeah. Right. That's, like she goes and not Calvin. It's not just yeah. like he's a king, but they don't know each other. They don't love each other in the same. They they don't have that history. So well, and I think even the fact that you know you're saying it's not um, a feeling. I think the fact that Meg is there, her simply going to Camisots, even though she knows how much it will cost her, and she knows um, what a difficult thing it will be. That is her loving Charles Wallace. Um, and that is largely an act of her not feeling powerful, of her laying down force, of her kind of making herself vulnerable to this thing that costs her a great deal, you know? Yeah. Showing, I mean, the power of showing up for people, yeah. whether that's, just, you know, being physically present with them or, or not physically present, you know, because if we can't, we can't do that these days. Um, but what, what does showing up? Yes. The people we love. Yeah. So. Showing up in ways that are even costly to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, yes. And I think also, I think what's beautiful about this is that Meg is calling out the capacity 
to in Charles Wallace to love. Um, you know, and I think that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. I was, um, my, my niece really likes me to tell her stories right now. She doesn't want me to read her books. She wants me just to tell her stories and she'll ask this for hours and hours and hours on end. And I've been thinking maybe I have a future in children's books simply because I've been, you know, coming up with all these ideas for stories because one just is pulling them out of nowhere as one is trying to get her to eat rice. And today, um, and she likes to be the center of the story. So today we were ta- telling a story about, uh, you know, Lillian Joy who made things beautiful by loving them. And so we talked about, you know, a garden or a dog or this or that. And I was thinking about how that's also true of people that, um, that sometimes we can think someone cannot love, um, because they haven't been loved into being beautiful. And I think that it reminds me a lot of, of Henri Nouwen's little book. Have you ever read Life of the Beloved? Um, oh, it's gorgeous. Read it. I read it the year that I was um, finishing my first year of PhD and I felt generally like a not intelligent, lovable person. And it's all about how at the core of who we are is loved. And when we know that we are loved, we're able to make other people feel loved, not because we're needing them to feel loved, but because we give that as a gift to other people. And I feel like that's what happens with Meg. She's been, she has been kind of literally carried by Aunt Beast who makes her feel safe physically. And then she, she, that seeps into her and she's able to feel it spiritually. And because she is so secure in love, she's able to call out that love in Charles Wallace. And, um, and I think that's just kind of a beautiful picture of love being a gift that we are given and then can extend to other people because it resides so deeply in us. Yeah, and I think you're you're reminding me of, you know, a, something that I'm, I've been thinking about as really important these days. So when you are loved and it's you, you can also feel called to love other people, right? To yeah. bring that out. It's, there isn't a passivity around it. And I, mm-hmm. I'm reminded about her, you know, people ask me about her faith, mm. talk about faith, and often people talk about faith as sort of a warm blanket mm. that you wrap around yourself and you feel cozy and warm and safe and secure mm-hmm. and solid and you know what's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had a very different idea about what faith did, hmm. um, what faith was. And I think, um, and it's why I'm often uncomfortable around people who say they are people of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, because then they, they feel like they're in this, they have armor around them and they're safe. Um, and instead of sort of, you know, no faith calls you to to act and to love and to not be safe. Yeah. It calls you to be creative, yeah, uh, um, and vulnerable. Yeah. It's so tempting to, especially when things feel so challenging and unstable. Not just COVID, but rise of authoritarianism. You know, still white supremacy being so entrenched and uh, an equal in the United States and elsewhere that it feels very easy to retreat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the call to love each other and the call, if you're faithful to, mm-hmm. to act, um, feels really super powerful right now. It does. Um, and important. I've been thinking this summer about, um, I think that when we use faith as something just to be a security or a uh, faith as something that we that we use like it, you know, you can you can use a religious faith like it. You can act as though it's the thing that gives you all the answers. You don't have to try. You don't have to move forward. That it makes you safe. That it makes you know who's in and who's out, who's acceptable and who's not. And um, and you know that's the thing that is. Uh, the greatest shame and also like in scripture the most detestable thing to to use it as something that that isn't about movement and towards love and towards other people one of the things that's helpful for me my mom used to she read this when she was a little girl when she had pneumonia um, and she said she read it over and over again and she said it always gave her this picture of what in the world is the kind of pulsating call of it to like 
just sit back and be safe and not love and not allow for differences? And then how do we then listen to the voice of love and kind of be pulled out of that? And I think that's been particularly powerful for me this year when there's so many different things that can make us feel unsafe. And when we feel unsafe, we're particularly vulnerable to wanting to give in to a something or a someone that will just say, we don't have to act. We don't have to be the Meg that goes and saves Charles Wallace. And, um, but I think that the challenge that this book gives us is that if you truly know yourself to be loved, you have to go out and find Charles Wallace. It puts you into a stance of action. Um, and it shows you, I've been doing two book clubs. So on my Patreon, I've been doing Julian of Norwich and then I've been doing how do you do all of this? I don't know. I'm going to sleep for three or four years when I'm done with my PhD. Um, but it's been a really uh, interesting kind of two sides of a coin. And maybe that's just because I'm reading both of them. So I want them to be connected. But the thing that Julian Norwich says over and over again is uh, he is keeping us very safe. That there is this sense of when you know you are loved, you are fundamentally safe. There's nothing that can happen to you will make you not safe. And that sense of safety makes you able to be brave. And I feel like that's what kind of happens with Meg is she knows that she's safe, not because she's given up herself or given up her ability to choose, but because she's loved. And that essential safety makes her able to be brave. And it's there. It's so, you know, there's so many, there's layers of, and language like is, can be so inadequate, right? Because safety, there's good safety and there's, there's Aunt Beast and there's the It. And those are so similar, like, in the language, but they're so right. fundamentally different in actual Fundamentally different that you want to be safe. I agree that she has this baseline. She is loved. Yep. She's safe knowing that, like, she is loved. Yeah. But then she has to act and be vulnerable and not be safe, yep. right? And, you know, I think in Walking on Water, Madeline says, you know, Safety was never the promise. Mm-hmm. Creativity, yes, but safety, no. Yeah. Um, so I always, I always think about that. So God's love, on peace, love, yeah, gives you. That's not safety, but it's mm-hmm. it's something. It's um, just because we all get we all get so confused with what these words mean and we what we we think we know that we're using them in the same way. Yes, and we're not. No. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, with Aunt Beast and with It, um, they both kind of ask Meg to relax, to be at ease, to not, you know, push and struggle. But the It asks her to do that because it it's asking her to do that in a way that compromises her self, that she's no longer an individual, that she's kind of this, you know... Um, amorphous thing and Aunt Beast asks her to do it in a way that is very very catered to her as a person but I think the thing is she doesn't stay with Aunt Beast like the fruition of that safety or that comfort is like you said it's action and it's moving out of that um and and I think that is the trajectory that that Meg goes on is that we can't stop at the warm blanket we can't stop in Aunt Beast's arms we have to move towards action and towards love. Um, mm-hmm. But that that action and love is not one of power in the way the world thinks of power. It's, it's, it is truly love that makes itself vulnerable. And that, that is the thing that quite literally disarms power. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the main things is it leaves me hungry to read the rest of the books because it ends with this great kind of abruptness. And in a way, I almost feel like it ends, it ends with Meg ready to be a hero like in the sense she already is a hero she's helped she's helped bring charles wallace out of his world but to me this is kind of it's really a story of preparation it's a story of meg becoming the kind of person who can be a hero i agree although i would caution maybe so cautioning you and the reader like we're so used now these days to to series be sort of of a whole and mm-hmm. where they're like Harry Potter and it's, yeah. you know, five years or whatever in school or mm-hmm. four, I, I don't remember, or seven, whatever it is. Um, and she didn't write no. series. Okay. 
she would revisit characters. Um, and I, but, and I think you're right about Meg, but I think one of the things is, is that, um, she's not Harry Potter. She's not the singular character that we're meant to care about. No. And she's not, she never actually finished it. Like she never finishes Meg. Just like we're never finished. A wind in the door takes place, you know, a year later. Mm-hmm. And then a swiftly tilting planet is like 10 years later and Meg's pregnant and isn't the one going on adventures. And it's people felt a real loss mm-hmm. <laughs> about that and some anger at her about what she did to Meg. Right. Um, and then many waters is about the twins mm-hmm. and an acceptable time is a whole different character from a whole different book series. Uh, um, and, and when she, um, at the time of her death, she had been working but hadn't been working mm. on it for a long time because she wasn't able to, a book about Meg in her 50s. Mm. Um, and Meg was still Meg and still s- struggling. Mm. Um, and I think that's what, you know, that's the beauty and the tragedy you know, Being to, to, to what we said, said before, it's like, no, you're, you're not going to learn this lesson once. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn this lesson over and over again. <laughs> My mom is always saying to me, I'll be perfect by the time I'm 69. Um, <laughs> you know, recurrently with every, with every birthday. Yeah. And I, I think that's true, but I do think that it's this weird mixture in life of both seeing moments of real growth where we do become something we weren't before, mm-hmm. but also yes. know, knowing that that real growth will happen over and over and over again, and that it's a muscle that becomes stronger and stronger, not a a thing that's completed mm-hmm. in this lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any final thoughts or words as we come to the end of Wrinkle in Time, things that you think people should carry with them? I, you know, the, I just think the most important thing about the book to me right now is this message, Mm. this sense, this, um, this call that, um, that it is, you know, each of us, each of us is called, Mm -hmm. um, and each of us is going to find a way to, um, to love and be loved and to fight the darkness. Um, and I think, you know, if we look for other people to save us or to do Mm -hmm. it for us, um, that's not what's going to happen. Um, and it's going to be us. Uh, and that's scary and empowering and, um, um, and that's, that's life. And it's the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, my mom's recurring thing, I remember as a kid, that she would always say to us, so she'd always go, you have a choice to make. You can either do this or you can do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and obviously those are things that when you're a kid, it can be, you know, you either can take a nap or you can have a meltdown and we can all be very, have a very unpleasant time. But there's a sense in which that, that phrase has followed me of, you have a choice to make. And um, it's a very empowering thing because it reminds us that, the choices we make do have consequences and that we have the opportunity to join in the battle for good things, but we have to decide to, and we have to realize that, um, you know, Mr. Murray and the Mrs. W's, nobody else can do the part of loving and joining in the battle that we can. And, um, and we have to make the choice to be the person who joins in the battle. And I, I cannot think of a more important time in my lifetime as of yet than this moment to kind of choose to be that. May we all be Megs who make that choice, but we also make it over and over and over again for all of our lives. Mm -hmm. Well, Charlotte, thank you so much for joining me on this final episode. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for caring enough about the book to spend so much really good time with it and with other people on your on your podcast um it's really remarkable oh well i've loved doing it and it's been uh it's been amazing i think to talk with many people about it for such a prolonged amount of time to get to sit with it and i've noticed things i've never noticed before and i find myself encouraged every week thinking and talking about it so 
Well, friends, that's a wrap for Reading with Joy, Summer 2020. I can't tell you all how much I've enjoyed hosting this book club, both from all the conversations I got to have with guests every week, but also your comments and illuminations each week on Instagram and Facebook. It has been a light and a grace and a joy to read this book with you. I just wanted to give you a quick update on Speaking with Joy um, in the upcoming months. As I've been pondering about this coming year, finishing my PhD, and what will come next, I don't know if I'll be able to have my podcast again next year, but I know that I want to continue this year putting out episodes that will be fodder for thought, um, that will be bits of joy and beauty. And so I wanted to let you all know that I'll be posting the new season of Speaking with Joy coming in October, so I'll have about a month off. And that season will be a mixture of interviews with some of my favorite people. I really want to take advantage of this time in my final year of my PhD to interview some of the thinkers that I find the most compelling, mixed in with my ordinary episodes where I'm going to feature some of my favorite works of art that I feel like you must know and you must have in your treasure chest to face life bravely. So stay tuned for that, stay hopeful, and I'll chat with you all in October.
a site. I, this is really duh, but I had not really thought deeply about the theme of sight in it until this reading. Um, but it's, of course, all the way through there, the beasts who can't see, the, um, you know, Mrs. Who's glasses. Yep. Um, I usually wear glasses. I am blind right now. Um, you know, so that was one that came up a lot. Uh, several people have questions about if the Mrs., you know, Mrs. Who, Mrs., what's it, Mrs. Witch, if they are a little bit Trinitarian because you have the kind of distant, slightly more um, God the Father-ish Mrs. Witch, and then you have Mrs. Who, who quite literally is always talking in the words, uh, and then Mrs. What's-it, who, like, communicates and kind of mediates these two more distant figures to everybody else. So that that was a question. Uh-huh. And who made a great sacrifice at one point. Exactly, and who made a great sacrifice. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, you hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Well, yeah. uh, no, because we're like we're told they're they're like guardian angels. Yes, which is a different order. But yeah, you can think about them. <laughs> be kind of, yeah, so that was one that came up. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, then there was some discussion about whether or not, um, which of course I have my own opinions on whether or not. It or or thoughts was a picture of communism, or if it was a picture of capitalism, or if it was a picture of you know the general problem that humans have overall. Um, that was a ongoing. That was you know, more... there's a there's a cut section of the manuscript that um, that sort of talks about that really? about how um, how do planets become dark. Uh huh. Um, and this is a conversation that Mr. Murray and Calvin are having while Meg is sort of frozen after having been, mm-hmm. after they've landed on Ixchel. Um And Mr. Murray says that democracies can become dark too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's a mm-hmm. lust for security that um, makes planets, that democracies become dark when and there's complacency and too much prosperity. Um Democracies are in danger. Well, he's not wrong. I did, I did have several moments where people would comment things like, you know, this is just like all of us having to wear masks. And I was like, no, it's really not. I know. Wait a minute. No. I know. I know. No, it's not. <laughs> I, it's not. I, I actually, I was, I,